All right, let's go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's word. We are in Acts 17, verse 10. All right, uh, verse 10 and following. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, here we are in Acts once again. Let me get to the right chapter here. Not that much uh, background. All right. Chapter 17. We are, we're making our way. I feel like we, we got us, it took us a while to get here. And now we're slowing down. So just when you think you see the end, we're going to keep going. Feels like uh, slowing down a little bit, but I think for for good reason. I, I love the fact that we're we're slowing down to look at some of the connecting pieces, and, and I love that we did that with with Thessalonians and uh, when uh, Paul was visiting Thessalonica. I feel like it it, it sort of breathes some life into maybe some of these uh, letters, these books that we know about, but it kind of puts them in the right context, right? And so. We kind of see how it fits into the story. We start to see maybe some maybe personal things that Paul has. You know, he kind of shares a little bit in the letters, but to see it in the, the actual narrative, I think is helpful. It helps me to kind of put all these things together, you know. So I, I, I really appreciate that. And I like that we're slowing down. And I say all that because we are now approaching this, this passage here where there is no book written. There's no letter and so we won't be slowing down for this one. In fact, it's only got five verses. Um, don't worry, I'll, I'll stretch it out. We'll make it, we'll, we'll make it fit. Um, but we're, we're going to be looking at this story, this part of the story where Paul arrives in Berea. And uh, it, it is connected with the uh, story just before where Paul was in Thessalonica. And partly because of how this, this part of the story rounds up. I mean, we've already read it once, so it's no spoilers, but it is connected with, Thess- uh, with the th- uh, books of Thessalonians, with, at least with the people of Thessalonica. Um, and, and we'll see how that connects there. But it, it's funny because, uh, you know, unless you actually look at a map, so, so I'm going to invite you to do this. Turn to your maps. When was the last time you heard someone do that? Turn your maps. Phil, I said turn to the maps, please. <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, so if you look at the map, you can see how close Brea is to 
Thessalonica. Um, today, if you were to look on a modern map, it's not called Berea anymore. It's called uh, Veroia. And I looked it up. It's about 45 miles. The cheapest way to get there is probably by bus. It takes about an hour and a half. Um, about 45 miles or so. So it's, it's not that far, um, these two cities. So it definitely was, Paul had to hightail it out of town because of the applied heat they got in uh, Thessalonica. And so he arrives here at Berea. Berea as a, as a city is, uh, you, you, you don't have to look at the map anymore. Um, uh, Berea as a city is one we don't spend a lot of time in. Like I said, we don't have an additional letter, we don't have an additional book, we don't have any of those things, but Berea was actually a pretty prominent city. It was one of the, uh, probably maybe the second most important city in the region, in the area there. Um, little history that probably nobody cares about. Um, it was founded like five, 600 years earlier. But I think one of the things that it is it was known for was it was the first city to surrender when the Romans came. So you might think, what a bunch of cowards. However, secondarily, you might think, what a pragmatic group of people who might have just said, you know what? How about we just uh, let them roll on through? Right? That's what a lot of people did with the Greeks. They may have been what they did. And I don't know if you can connect that decision that was made, I think, 100 years earlier with the perspective that they have, but these seem to be some pretty pragmatic people. They, they make uh, very practical decisions. And so this might, this might be playing into who they are, who they are as a, as a people, as a church, who knows. But um, Paul ends up going there basically seeking refuge almost to uh, escape from Thessalonica, and as he arrives... He follows what he always does. What does Paul do? I'm going to ask. This is an interactive sermon. Uh, we've already looked at maps. We're doing lots of different things here. But um, if you were to describe what is Paul's sort of modus operandi when he shows up at a city, what does he do? What does he do first? Finds the synagogue. So there's a joke that he finds the synagogue first and then he goes and finds the jail, because after he finds the first one, he's probably going to go end up in the second one. But he, end, he goes and finds a synagogue, right? And he, he goes there. And, and so we could ask, why, why does he do that? So just as a reminder, he does that because he wants to go to the people who would respond first to this message of the Messiah actually arriving, the people who have a background, people who have knowledge of who God is, knowledge of his ways, who might be kind of the first to respond and this becomes a pattern that Paul develops. He does it in chapter 13, chapter 14. Here in chapter 17, he does it a couple times. Chapter 18, he does it three different times. Chapter 19, he, it, this is his pattern. This is what he does. And he enumerates it in a couple of other places where the gospel goes to the Jew and then to the Greek. This is his pattern. This is his, what he wants to do because he still, even though he is the apostle to the Gentiles, he has a heart for his countrymen. He goes into that in Romans chapters 9 through 11. You can definitely see the different things that Paul takes a chapter to talk about. He takes three chapters to talk about this thing that's close to his heart. He wants desperately 
for his countrymen to know and to understand who the Messiah is and to understand the gospel. And so Paul does that here. He does this in Berea. He shows up, and as we look here at the passage here at verse 10, it says they went, it was Paul and Silas, and we're going to walk through these verses here, and then we'll look at a few things. But Paul and Silas show up. So where's Luke? Well, Luke apparently was left in Philippi for some reason. Um, Probably to strengthen the brothers like he does many other, many other times. He leaves a companion to do this. If you look at how Paul organizes these trips, obviously I don't think it was his plan to leave Thessalonica as soon as he did. Uh, but when he does, he, he sort of has this almost uh, uh, certain playbook that he goes that He leaves someone there or he sends someone back. But he, they cover an amazing amount of ground, just the few companions that he has. And so he leaves them there, and then he'll leave Silas here, and then he'll move on, and then he'll call for them, and they'll, both, they'll all meet up in, in, in Corinth after Paul spends some time in Athens. So he, he's actually very much a, uh, maximizing this time that he has with his, with his companions and, and organizing that. So I, I, all credit to Paul for that reason. So some, for some reason, he leaves Luke there, but he takes Silas with him. They travel by night to Berea. It says, when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. This is what he normally does. Verse 11, now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with all eagerness. So, we'll pause there for a second. What does it mean that they're more noble? There's a few things it could mean. Um, if you look up the definition, I don't think this has anything to do with chemistry. So we'll leave that aside. It doesn't have anything to do with that. But I think when to talk about noble, it could mean that they were all, maybe they're of, of higher birth. I don't think that has anything to do with that. I don't think it has to do with the level of society that they're at. These were all noblemen in the synagogue. No, it doesn't, I don't think it has anything to do with that. What it has to do, in fact, if you look at a couple of other translations, you'll find this. I, I found this to be a funny way to put it because of what they actually do in light of this. It says they're more noble. One way to think of this is that they were open-minded. They were willing so listen, now I think it's important for us to stop and to think about that because of what happens in the next part of the story where he goes to Athens. But we'll get there next time. But if you look at this, it says they were more open-minded, they were more noble. And then it goes into what that means in the next couple of verses. But there was something different about the Bereans. There's something different about how they listened to Paul, what they took from that what, how they interacted with the information that Paul was delivering. There's a direct comparison with Thessalonica, and so that maybe that had to do with the particular interactions that they had there with particular individuals. It says that they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. So those are the three things that we're going to look at. Okay, eagerness, they received it with eagerness. They examined the scriptures, and they did this daily. It says they did this to see if these things were so. They checked it out. And if you've been in the church for any measure of time, if you've heard the Bereans, usually it says, we need to be like the Bereans. What does that mean? We need to be like the Bereans, right? Uh, normally, it is, in, it is in regard to this, that they, even though it's Paul, 
my goodness, it's Paul. They checked him by the scriptures, right? They examined the scriptures in light of what he was saying. So they took the message they were receiving from Paul and they examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. And it says that they did it daily. And we're, we're going to go into each of these in just a second here. But, but, a, but a couple of things to kind of define first. When we say scriptures, what do we mean? So this time, this is probably the 50s AD. Uh, it doesn't matter if it, was 19, if it was 50 or if it was almost at 1950. If it was 50 or 51 or 54, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's earlier, right? So they most likely don't have the Gospels. They most likely don't have the other writings that aren't written. That makes sense. They don't have those. But they, they, they don't have the New Testament at this point. So what do they have? When it says scriptures, what are they examining? Someone yell out an answer. The Old Testament. So when it says that they were examining the scriptures, they were taking this message that Paul was giving. Yes, this message of Jesus, him crucified, the resurrection, his promised return. They're taking these things and they were looking into the scriptures to see if this thing, these things were so. They were looking at, they were reading, they were studying the Old Testament. And that makes a lot of sense. Because where were they? They were in a synagogue. That makes a ton of sense, right? That's what they had. So a few different things to kind of keep in mind. At the time, books, scrolls, these types of things, which writings, that's what scripture means. Uh, these writings, it's not common for everyone to have a copy. But a synagogue would have a copy that they would then go from. So it was common for people to then go to listen to the word being read. And they were much more used to listening to information and dissecting it that way. So they had a presence of the, scripture, the scriptures. One of the things that synagogues would do would be uh, to educate. That was one of their purposes, to educate people. So Jews would go, as, as, as kids, they would go and they would actually learn to, to read oftentimes, or they would learn to at least be able to examine and listen appropriately. But the point was for education, for them to learn these different things. So these are not ignorant people. It's not as though you had a rabbi who had a copy, he kept it to himself. This was something that was looked into, it was examined, it was something that they were all expected to have a knowledge of. This is something that the synagogues were there for. So you could ask, because we're, we're, we're talking about a, a Jewish, very much an Old Testament sort of sentiment for, for these folks here, where did this come from? Where did this, this idea that they should examine the scriptures and compare, where, where did this come from? Is that cultural? Did all the synagogues do this? Because it actually doesn't seem like all the synagogues were really primed to do this. We don't get this kind of description from all the different places that Paul goes. So what was it? Where did, where did this come from? Now, a few things. We don't have much more information than these five verses. So we're going to walk through some logical things here, okay? We're going to examine some of the other things that, that may be in play for us to kind of understand kind of the situation that the Bereans may have been in. So a few different things. It was expected that if you had a question concerning what God was doing, you would go to the scriptures. And we can see this in Matthew chapter 2. Go to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to walk through a few different things to kind of help us think through this. Matthew chapter 2. Verse 
Looking at verse six. That's where we're gonna see that here. But the, the, the story is, the wise men travel because they see a star, right? We're not quite to Christmas, even though I see Christmas going up in different stores. You've seen it too. We're not quite there, but this is, I guess, precursor. So you have the wise men who travel to Jerusalem. They said, we're following the star. They don't know where this king of the Jews is supposed to be born. So they go to Jerusalem, and they ask, hey, where, where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? The answer we would probably suspect is, we don't know either. But what's funny is, they actually have an answer. Verse 2 says, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? For he saw a star when it rose. We've come to worship him. And Herod, the king, heard this, and he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with them. And they assembled the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. So they go to look. They maybe. Maybe they knew it offhand. I don't know. But it says that they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they had a question. They went to the scribes, and the scribes had an answer. Here's what's so weird. If they knew that, what, why do they just say, well, you, can, you guys can go figure it out. They let the wise men go and do those things. So we have this idea that they could go and find answers to things, but what we seem to be lacking here is some follow-through from the scribes. It was, they had information, but what else did they do? The, um, the scribes are usually connected with the Pharisees, uh, as they would search the scriptures, things like that. If we compare them with the other main sect of Judaism, which would be the Sadducees, they only took the first five books as being authoritative. So they wouldn't even look in the prophets. They only looked at the first five books. They were, um, yeah, they had a very different set of beliefs that way. The, the idea that these scribes, they're, they're, they're supposed to be searching the scripture and things like this. this. This was not something that was common throughout all of Israel's history. In fact, we go to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 22. We don't have to all turn there and read from there. But the story is the story of Josiah. You all know that story? The story of King Josiah? The little boy who became king? That's one of the phalanograph favorites, right? It's the little boy who became king. He became, became king at eight. Um, 18 years later, they find the Torah. They find law. What is this? What is this scroll? We found the Torah. We found the law. And so then they read through it and they were, or at least Josiah was greatly convicted, those who, who read it. So they, they made some big changes. They said, wow, we, we, we've got to tighten up some loose bolts here. They were very convicted. It says that they had, it was a, it was a big deal for them. But we lost it? We, we just found the Torah? We, we didn't know where it was, but apparently they, they found the scroll, they found the scroll in, the, in, the, in the temple. It's very weird, but a lot of what they must have followed was oral tradition, was 
just traditions that they had in place. Maybe they followed a feast just because they knew what to do because of that's what our parents told us to do and that's what they did, but they didn't have those scriptures. So it wasn't always the case that they had scribes that were always looking into the scripture. This was something that was organized after they returned from captivity. But the expectation had already been placed that not only would the people be familiar with the scriptures through interactions with the priesthood and with, with those things, but it was expected that the king would be very familiar, would actually read from the Torah every day. This we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 17, that the king, and this is funny because it was written in Deuteronomy before they even had a king, but they said someday when you say, I want a king, um, the king is expected to, when he becomes king, to in his own hand write the entire law, the whole Torah, with his own hand, and then he was to read from that copy that he wrote himself every day. And a lot of that was to keep them close to the Lord. So apparently this had fallen out of practice because Josiah had become king and didn't even know he was supposed to do this which is part of that conviction I'm sure he had. The synagogue system that they had where people would be able to go to a place and to meet and to hear from the Torah, and those, this was set up after the second temple period. So it was well established by the time of Jesus that you would go to a local community and you would have a synagogue that you would go and listen to. So that was very common to, to hear the Torah read, to hear the law read, to hear the, the, the Tanakh read. They would they would actually read it every, every week. They would go all the way through. and So they were very familiar with, with those different things. So apparently in Berea, they, they took these things very seriously and they, they read from them consistently. So there's three different things. We already looked at this, right? They, they received the message eagerly, right? That was number one. Number two, they examined the scriptures and they examined the scriptures daily. Those are the three things that we're that we're looking at. So the, for the first one, there's some very important New Testament sort of uh, teachings that we get on, on these different things. Let's look real quick at James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Looking at verse 4, it starts out very encouraging. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or, do you suppose that it is, no, that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that has uh, that he has made us made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We'll pause there just for a second. This concept of God giving grace to the humble, this is the spirit in which the Bereans accepted Paul's message. So they were hearing this message from Paul. It was different from what they'd heard before, but they received it with eagerness. It wouldn't be out of character. Paul was a, a pretty well-known teacher, at least in Israel. And so it would make sense that him coming with his credentials, they would, they would listen, and they would listen from, 
uh, from a visitor from so far away, they'd probably listen to him eagerly to see, what, what is this thing that you have? So they, they listened with eagerness, and the eagerness that they have, this is, this is a great mark of humility, and that's, that's why I read through that passage there. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. These are people who have been looking at the scriptures, who have heard the Torah, been hearing the prophets, but here comes a message, and so then they say, oh, let's, let's listen to this thing, but they didn't just take it in. They just, didn't just accept what he said, but they, but they listened to it with Humility, and I think that's one of the key things that we should key in on here. Verse seven, back in James chapter four. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is sort of that second principle. So they heard it, they listened to it with humility, but then they examined the scriptures. So they took that idea, this new message, and they submitted it to the Lord in the scriptures there. So they, they, they had that that point of submission. They, they, they took it. They didn't just receive it. They checked it. They looked and they compared. I would, um, anybody like uh, to eat fish? Not go fishing. Anybody like to eat fish? Yeah. When you eat fish, do you just swallow it whole? You shouldn't swallow anything whole, really. But Do you swallow it whole? Generally, you have to uh, eat it a little bit more carefully. Why is that? I'm sorry? The bones. You have to chew it a little bit more judiciously. And I would compare that to this. So we could say, oh, the, I'm fed by the word, and that's, that's true, and we hear a new teaching. We should, yeah, receive it. Yeah, it's fine, but maybe chew on it a little bit more uh, thoughtfully. Kind of chew through there and make sure you, you don't miss any of those bones, right? Uh, an examination. What's interesting here is that not only do they examine, not only do they submit what they've heard to the teaching that they already had in the scriptures, but what's interesting, it says that they did it daily. This I find very interesting. So they said, it says that they did this daily. So imagine this. They don't have a copy of the scriptures, so they have to get up, get ready, maybe get the family together. They have to travel to the synagogue, which is normally less than, you know, half a mile or so from where they were living generally. Who knows? Maybe it's different there. But they would travel there, and then they would examine these things together because they only have one copy. And so they were going through these things together, and they did this daily. Now, is this just because Paul showed up? I would submit that this is probably something they were more used to doing than probably some of the other synagogues that, they, that Paul would go and visit. This was most likely a pattern that they had, that they already were accomplishing some of these things. And so when Paul came, it was very normal and natural to go and do these things daily. And I say it that way because sometimes we say, oh, I should read my Bible, and it sits there, and it's very convenient, and it's in our language, and we can read, and it sits there, and we say, I'll do it later. And yet they had to put forth massive effort to go and to do these things daily. It cost them something. And I think the, the Western church, the popular church, however you want to state those things, we've kind of taken that responsibility that would be easy for us to, to take up 
and we've kind of farmed those things out. We've delegated those responsibility of daily chewing through the word, as we should, and have maybe farmed that out to others, to professionals. I think sometimes we're a little bit skittish in taking these things on our own and looking and comparing the scriptures. But I want to highlight this. They weren't just doing it on their own. They had to do it together. And I know we have Bible studies and I know we have some of these things, but I think we need to more so be in the habit of going through teachings, even new teachings. Oh, I learned something new. Someone says, hey, I learned this new thing in this, from this sermon or I read this book. And we need to be in the better habit of doing that together and to say, let's all look at this together and let's see what the scriptures say. And it's something we should do often. And in fact, if we take this pattern from the Bereans, we should be doing this daily. And of all the people in history, it is the easiest thing for us to do this daily. To go and to look and to find something and to then do that together in community. I'm not saying everybody has to meet every day, but it wasn't something they were just leaving to the Sabbath. When they showed up for synagogue to say, Okay, now what are we all talking about? What's going on? What happened? This is something they were engaged in daily. And I think it's something that we, because probably it's so easy for us to just pick up the scriptures and to read that we probably just don't do it as often as we should. Or we are too trusting. We trust an authority far too much. I, there's a reason when I read something up here, I, I ask you to also turn there and to read it. Is to make sure that you can see I'm not running off on my own. And in the same vein, if, if I'm up here teaching you something and you can't figure out how in the world I arrived at some sort of thought from the scripture that we're reading, I hope that someone takes me to task and say, I think you may have missed something or maybe it was from 2 Timothy, not first something to say, I have no idea how you got there. But at the very least, we should not just be taking what we are given and just gobbling it whole. There's a responsibility that we have. So, Berea does not get a letter from Paul. Do you know why? I think one of the reasons would be they probably were doing this. And Paul's like, you guys are good. You guys have a good pattern here. You guys are receiving this, the, uh, the message of the gospel because you're testing it by scripture. Great patterns here. You don't get a letter, because who does Paul write a letter to? Usually a church who's either not doing something right, cough, cough, Corinth, uh, or they have some sort of a difficulty where they need some form of encouragement. But it seems like they have those things built into their daily patterns anyway, which is pretty awesome. So, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This will be our last stop. But I wanted to do something here. Uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led the host, a, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Jump down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Sometimes there's just a period there in our own minds. So he gave us these people. Amen. 
But verse 12, it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the status of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, into the Messiah, for whom the whole body, I'm sorry, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. This should be our practice. It's, it's not for us just to go and to receive, just to be able to say that we've walked through a book at church. The, the point is, is the Lord gave people who are especially gifted to equip, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Because you'll notice Paul will stay in a place, his companions will stay in a place for a short period of time, but then they'll leave. They're not hanging around. They're not saying, we've got to stay here for a while. He stays around a couple places, probably strategically, right? He stays in Ephesus for a while. He stays a couple places for a while. But all this to say, he leaves them there basically with the knowledge, and he might leave someone to continue some of the teaching, but the point is, is that they need to pick up these patterns, they need to look in the scriptures, the Old Testament, and they need to move forward with that understanding and to accomplish the work that God has called them to do as the church. And I think for some of us, we, it's not as though we're all ignorant. I'm not, I'm not talking to people who don't read your Bibles, right? I, I know that you all do because we have good conversations, but I think it's something that maybe, maybe, maybe we're reading this, we say, maybe I could do it a little bit better. It could be a little more organized. Or you could maybe say, I don't really do it daily. I don't look at the scriptures. I don't take things I care about, things I'm worried about, I have anxieties about, and I don't go to the scriptures with those. I don't talk to people about those things. You go to a Bible study, you talk maybe about the text, but where are we taking the things that we know and applying it, or I'm sorry, bringing it under submission to the word so that we all together benefit from those things? A couple things then. This should lead us to practice of repentance, all of us together. If we are doing this together, it'll lead us to a practice of repentance. If I were to ask you, what is the definition of repentance? I think some of us probably would talk about, well, it's, it's us turning away from things that we're doing. We'd, we'd make it very, I think usually salvation-based, action-based, things like that. But the point is, is we need to have an attitude of repentance. Acts 26, which we'll get there eventually, but just real quick. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Back up one verse. Therefore, O King Agrippa, this is Paul talking, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then to Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should, listen to this, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. The idea is that we continue in our repentance. So the idea is repentance should be a change of mind that results in a change of action. And that is best done 
in community because there's built-in accountability there. There's encouragement there. So we're going to workshop it real quick for a couple minutes. Just people around you. Love to, uh, okay, no pleasantries. How was your week? Nah, no one cares. Just need you to talk about this. What do you do? How do you read through the scriptures? Maybe we can be honest with each other, say, ah, it's kind of haphazard. Once or twice a week, I'll pick up my Bible. Maybe we just do it on Sunday. Maybe we read through the passage before we come. Maybe we don't. What are those things? What are those patterns? And so I want to just take a really quick minute or two. Let's learn from each other real quick. What are we all doing? And guess what we're doing when we do this? We are doing this in community. So two minutes. What's your pattern for going through the scriptures? Maybe some of you need to get up out of your seat and go somewhere else. I don't know. Brent, you look pretty lonely there. Just saying. They're going to talk. I'm just joking. Just joking. Okay, two minutes. Go. Maybe another minute. it up here. <clears throat> How many of you 
want to share something where you talk to someone and said, oh, that's a good idea. I should do that. How many of you heard something like that? We're like, oh, maybe it's a small thing. All right, Matt, you want to share real quick? Loud? Proud. Oh, like a morning and an evening sort of thing? Very good. Yeah, that's a good practice. Good, good job, Phil. All right, remember, humility, humility, humility. Okay. Anyone else? Encourage, yes, encourage the brothers. Yes. So I love that. So uh, anchoring sort of our time here, maybe read a chapter together before or after church is that opportunity. Excellent. And that, might I say, that's a, that's a great problem-solving sort of thing for someone who can't drive. Great work. You see, there is no barrier. What else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Yeah. You version. Talk more. Talk more about that. I'm so glad, Christopher, that you brought that up. Uversion um, Bible app, and there's a few other ones that have this too, but I know they have multiple versions that have audio Bible with it, so maybe, maybe you've got to drive. Maybe you have a routine you already have, and though you add that to your morning routine by letting someone else read the scripture. Absolutely. You don't think you have to sit there at a desk by a candle and read the Bible, although that's pretty nice, though. I don't know. Anything else? Anyone else? Anyone else? This is your last chance. We can't ever talk about this again unless you share it right now. Yes? Yeah. Bible recap app. So one of the things, of course, Marisa would bring this up, is the structure is helpful, right? Yes, the structure is helpful. And if you're like, I'm, I know the structure is helpful, but I don't know what structure to get. Three chapters a day, you read the Bible in a year. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. It's just math, everybody. Three chapters. If you're feeling frisky, you could do four. Make sure, you know, in case you make up for some of the days that you miss. Because that'll happen. And I think part of that, too, is if you miss, is it the end of the world? No. Do you know how I know? I, I missed last week, and it, the world did not end. So rest assured, we're all okay. I'm, what? It's still a job. It's still, still all working out. So if you miss, the enemy can really get on you. Oh, you missed it. You, you, you ruined your whole structure. No, just it's a new day, right? It's the next day. And I would say try to find times where you can do these things with each other. Read through the scriptures. If you have something, write, write it down. If you're not a write in the margins of your Bible, Caitlin, right? I know Caitlin does that. I don't. I write in my notebook, right? I don't want to write in here. So whatever your structure is, take that structure, use it, and encourage each other because we're all supposed to be in the work of ministry according to the gifts that we have. So we have to fill up our understanding, our knowledge, so that the Lord can use us in different situations. And there's a, for the Bereans, uh, when Paul showed up, the blessing that they received, and think about the blessing to Paul. Ah, oh, I'm among people who care about the scriptures. This is great. And it says that they received it wonderfully. So those three things, remember, receive it with humility, right, and submission, 
practice that consistency daily. They did it daily, practice those things. And like we just heard from Ephesians, practice the truth and love so that we can be built up in unity and maturity. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the example that we have of these early believers who heard the word and they eagerly wanted to look into these things and then went directly to your word. Lord, I pray you'd make us people of your word, that we would know and understand what you're telling us to do, what you're saying to us, what you're teaching us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who not only learn from the word ourselves, we become a people who do this in community, that we all, Lord, may benefit from one another. Lord, I pray that we would be people who go to your word daily for truth, for encouragement. Lord, that we might minister to others, not just others within the church, perhaps in in other churches as well, but ultimately, Lord, that we might be able to share the truth in love with those outside the body, those without knowledge of who you are, that we might, with our lives, show a life of repentance, a mind that is continually being challenged to change according to the truth of your word, Lord, that we might bear fruit of repentance, that our actions might reflect the repentance that's taking place in our hearts. Lord, that we might then live a life that allows others to see, Lord, you reflected. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit we'd be able to do this, to accomplish this, to encourage each other, to love each other. Lord, that we might continually be running this race as though we will win. Pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.